Hey, uh, we will be continuing our study in that wonderful book of Hebrews tonight. And as we, yeah, go ahead. God's word, yay. (laughs) As we do, we're going to be continuing in chapter 9. And as we continue in chapter 9, we're going to be continuing with really the theme that has been in the last couple of, of of weeks here. And that is just the theme of um, old versus new, right? It's kind of what we've been on the last couple of, of, of weeks is the old way versus the new way. And in chapter nine, we're gonna be um, faced with a comparison, the old covenant, right? With its earthly place of worship, the tabernacle, right? With its earthly imperfect priests, mediating over temporary, external, and very symbolic rituals. They're copies of the original. We'll be comparing that to the real deal, the new covenant, right? With its, what, heavenly place of worship, right? The very throne room of God. Our high priest of that is none other than our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. He mediates over better, eternal, (laughs) not temporary, but better, eternal, original, deep promises. So that's our comparison tonight. And as we do that, I think it'd be um, a very necessary message for this group of Hebrew believers. I mean... Think about these Hebrew believers. These were Hebrew believers. (laughs) They were Jewish Christians, right? So they were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in the substitutionary death of, of the Lord Jesus Christ for their sins, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were going to heaven. They were Christians. But they were early Christians who were hounded by religiosity because they were Jews. I mean, think about this just for a second. They had practiced this religion for centuries. So they were very tempted to slip back under the old way, even though they knew better, right? So they needed this message. They needed this message of this chapter, and this is really the two big messages of this chapter. Number one is the old way, The old covenant, right? The tabernacle, the place of worship and its service, it was very limited. And so the first part of this chapter, that's all it is. It's comparing the old way. It's trying to remind the reader, hey, you're slipping back into something that's inferior. You're slipping back into something that's a copy of the original. You're slipping back into something that was temporary. It's really expired. And it's really shallow. It just takes care of the outside, not the inner man. They needed that. But they also needed, not only to see the limitations of the old, they needed to see the superiority of the new, right? This new way that was ushered in by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the new covenant, that's far superior. So that's really our two, we're just going to crack this thing in half and big, we're going to keep it real simple today. You guys good with that? Right? Old, limited, new, superior, Are you ready to do this? 
Let's check it out here. I think what'll help when we compare and contrast these two covenants is really to see the differences between their, their, their worship, the places of their worship, their tabernacles, and the service therein. So the first 10 verses here, we'll talk about the earthly sanctuary. We'll check it out here. I'll read it for you here a little bit. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which had a lampstand and a table and the bread of the presence, and it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place or the holies of holies, having the golden altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and in the tablets of the covenant. The Ten Commandments were in that. Above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Verse 6. These preparations have thus being made. The priest goes in regularly to the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest gets to go and only but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, the first thing you gotta know after reading that is there's a cultural divide here. Okay, we just gotta, we just gotta up front, there's a cultural divide here. The American mind here, I don't know about you, but when I start reading that kind of stuff, I mean, you remember, remember like Jerry Maguire, like you had me at hello? You lost me at lampstand. <laughs> right? there's, a, there's a lot of details there. And it can be confusing and a little overwhelming to the American mind. You're thinking, why would they slip back into what? All of these religious rituals, all these details. It can be overwhelming and a little confusing and a little... I mean, when I studied this, I was like, okay, let's, let's read that about 10 times. Because I'm not a Jew, there's a cultural divide here. Listen, to our mind, this doesn't, at least to me, we need, we need to r- really realize that although maybe dull and maybe a little overwhelming and confusing to the American mind, this was in no way strange to the Hebrew mind. This was old and comfortable. This was like an old blankie that they wanted <laughs> to go back to, to comfort them. Century after century, generation after generation, they learn these rituals, these traditions, and they don't die easy. We need to acknowledge that before we start looking into to this. Why these Jews would go back there? Here's one reason. Judaism, if you've studied it all, the tabernacle and later the temple was really the center of their culture It was their community. It was their social network. It's where they fellowshiped. It's where they came. It was their tradition and their culture. The Jews revolved around the tabernacle and the temple. They longed for those traditions and those rituals, and they wanted it. Culture and tradition is hard to die, so the draw for the Jew to go back there was was heavy. You need to realize this. If you want to know an illustration of that, and you want me to prove that to you, read Hebrew, I mean, read Acts chapter 21. The Apostle Paul, do you remember when he goes to Jerusalem to visit 
I think this very same church that this book was written to, you remember that story? It didn't go well, did it? It was the beginning of the end for Paul, a Jew, but he was the steward of the dispensation of grace. He went there and he met with James, remember? James, pretty powerful guy. James laid the wood to him, didn't he? You read that. James approached him and said, Paul, we hear you're, t- you're teaching people freedom in Christ, really, that they don't have to observe these rules, that they don't have to circumcise their kids, right? That they can eat whatever they want. James would say that to Paul. And what did Paul say? You think Paul, what do you think Paul said? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Is that what he said? No, he cowered. He was a Jew. And he, James stood up to him and said, hey, if you take that back, you go into this temple and take a Jewish vow with these other people. Go in there. And he did. I can't believe that. In Acts chapter 21, the apostle Paul, the writer of most of this New Testament, basically cowered down to the Jewish leaders of this Hebrew church and said, yeah, I'll go take a vow. Yeah. Maybe the law isn't dead. Maybe Jesus didn't fulfill that. I don't know. Oh, so maybe why I think Paul wrote this book. He wanted a do-over, I think. <laughs> he said, this is what I really meant to say. Listen, <laughs> right? So it's a big draw, a cultural divide. We need to realize that. But listen, the whole point of this first part of this chapter is not the details of the old way of worship, the earthly sanctuary. But let's just breeze through it. It was a tent, right? It was an earthly tent where God was to meet with man. It had an outer section, right? That had a lampstand, right? Had a table with the showbread on it, right? In that place, if you connect it with verse six, it says, the priests go in regularly to perform their rituals. So they would go in there, If you sinned, you could go in that part and get cleaned on the outside, right? You sinned, we'll clean you on the outside. But the second place, that was called the holy place. But verse 3, behind the second curtain of the second section, there was a place called the holies of holies. Having a golden altar of incense, had the Ark of the Covenant, right? The manna was in there, Aaron's rod that budded, remember? Ten Commandments. Above it was cherubim over the mercy seat. It's where God would meet and look at the sacrifice that sat on the mercy seat, right? That place, according to verse 7, the high priest only got to go. And you only got to go there once a year on a time they called the Day of Atonement. And he wouldn't go in there without blood, it said, right? He'd go in there with blood for himself and all the unintentional sins that weren't cleansed on the outside, right, on the first layer of the nation. He would take that blood, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. God, who was there in presence, sitting above the cherub and looking down the mercy seat, would say, I'm satisfied with that, temporarily. And they would do that again and again and again. That's where we're at. That's not really this, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna rest on verse six where it says, it says this, it says, or verse five, of these things we cannot speak in detail. Let's not do that, it would take forever. There's 50 chapters on this in the Bible. Go back to our teaching on Exodus. You can really get to the tabernacle. Really what's important about this chapter is is really the limitations of that. And you find that in verse 9 and 10. 
And this is the point of the writer. He does a quick review. He doesn't want to talk about the details because the reader would understand those details, right? They're Jews. They know it. In fact, they've snuck back into it. He's saying, listen, here's the point. You're doing all this stuff. Let me bring up a couple points for you. The writer would say in verse nine, the main limitation of this is that it's merely symbolic. It's a copy. Look at verse nine, which is symbolic for this present age. Your precious earthly tabernacle, that system, it's a symbol. That's all it is. It really, it means, it's the same word, of, it's the parable word. It's the same, it's, it's a parable word. It means when you look at that, guys, hey, listen, this doesn't mean anything in and of itself. It has a hidden truth that runs right alongside of it. So when you're doing this year after year after year, you should see the symbolism in it. That's what God was trying to show him through this. Could you imagine reading the, the parable of the prodigal son and all you could get out of it is, that was, a, that was a really nice earthly father. He was pretty generous. He threw a party. He forgave. What a great, what a great father. Let's all be good fathers. But she didn't reach in to say, that's our heavenly father. The hidden truth that runs down is that we're all prodigal sons, and our heavenly father welcomes us back when we come to our senses, and he puts a robe on us, right, and a ring and throws a party for us. That's the truth behind the prodigal son. If you get caught up in the earthly part, you don't get the real hidden truth. He's saying, hey, Jew, <laughs> hey, Jewish Christian, who knows better? These are just symbols. In and of themselves, they don't need much. They represent something bigger. Open your eyes, right? Even good things, God-ordained things, in and of themselves, if they're just symbols of something bigger, they don't mean anything in and of themselves, right? It's like baptism. I love the way Pastor Matt explains it, right? The water's not magic. Same water we swim in, same waters we drink. Heck, my cows drink that water, right? God forbid your kids pee in it when they're in the pool. It's water. What makes it special is it's a symbol. When you go down in that water and you come back out, it's a symbol of what happened in your heart and what Jesus Christ did for you. Amen? That's what makes it special is that you died with him. You were buried with him, but you arose with him for a whole new life. You buried that old stuff. And then you can say, Hallelujah. I got dunked in the water. It ain't the water. <laughs> it's what it's symbolizing. Amen? And that's what they're saying here. The writer's saying, listen, that was nothing but a symbol. Hmm. If you keep going, you'll see another limitation. It's shallow. Check it out. According to this arrangement, the gifts and the sacrifice offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and washings and regulation of the body. Did you catch that? It's shallow. It's superficial. It never went to the heart of the matter. It never cleaned the conscience, it says. The worshiper could never have his conscience cleaned. That's important. They're saying, guys, why are you going back there? 
It's limited, it's shallow, it's external. It cannot perfect your guilty conscience. So they went back again, and they covered it up with external, and they kept doing it again. All along, God's trying to point them to something bigger, something that could clean the inner man, not just the outer man, right? To go to the heart of the matter. So you don't have to feel guilty anymore when you fail. Can you imagine going in there and, oh, here's, here's, here's my sacrifice, <laughs> And never being completely and fully cleansed, just plagued by this guilty conscience. And then you felt guilty, and then you went back in there and have to get more ritual that didn't clean your conscience, so you felt more guilty. Have you ever been there? <laughs> when we fail, and we feel guilty about failing, so then we're motivated to be good, to wipe out our guilt. You do a lot of good works, and then you feel guilty because it didn't help. And then you remember, as a Christian, I don't have to feel guilty. Now I feel guilty about feeling guilty. <laughs> Am I speaking to the right people here tonight? <laughs> it never cleaned the conscience. It never, it never addressed the real problem. It gave, the, it gave no rest to the worshiper, continually hounding him, making him feel guilty, dragging him back again and again to perform something that really never met and served and addressed the real problem. Amen? Stinks. That's what it does. Your sin still stinks. Reminds me of Russian showers. If there's any Russians in here, I do apologize up front. Maybe it wasn't the Russians. Maybe it was the Russian wrestlers I was hanging out with. You know, I used to wrestle internationally. And if you wanted to be a good wrestler, you, you, had, to, you had to train and you had to learn how to beat Russians because they're the best. They kind of still are. It's one of their national sports. They're awesome. And I remember training with them and competing against them. And one time I was training with them in Moscow and, and we got to train with them for like a week. I, I wrestled Russians from the time I was 17 all the way through about 23 or 24, and I learned to really respect them, but I did not respect their hygiene. Now listen, it could just be the wrestling part, because I've seen American wrestlers too, so let's forgive the Russians, but this is how they took care of after a workout. I mean, after a wrestling workout, you can only imagine what you smell and look like. Full knockout, drag out, two-hour wrestling practice. This is what we did. We hit the showers. They took their clothes out, off their workout stuff, stuffed it in, if they had been to America, a Walmart plastic bag, put it in there, wound it up, and then they put cologne on themselves. Right? It's a European shower, man. Those guys stunk. They did. You see, <laughs> their solution never addressed the real problem. They needed, they needed a deeper cleaning, but they keep covering up. And they go back tomorrow, and they, the next day, and they would take their stuff out of that Walmart bag and put it back on and do it all over again. Smell you later. Listen. They stunk. They were hard to be around. And so are people who don't address the real problem and get stuck on the outward ritual. They stink too. They're religious bigots is what they are. And we can all be that. God help us all. 
You shine yourself up as much as you want, and you keep shining. You keep putting that cologne on until you meet Jesus, and we're getting there, face to face. You're not addressing the problem. You're doing nothing but stinking up the place. Amen? The last limitation was, this is something to remember for these Jews, and maybe, maybe us too when we get caught up into our works. This kind of sanctuary, this kind of old covenant had an expiration date. It was dead. It expired. It's like that carton of milk that is way, way too old. It's expired. Check it out in verse 10. It says, this deals only with food and drink and very washings, regulation of the body imposed when? Until the time of reformation. What's the time of reformation? Well, it doesn't have to do with Martin Luther. <laughs> it really just means the time when things get set straight. When the external becomes the eternal, right? When the copies become the original. It's when Jesus Christ comes on the scene. And he dies and he sheds his blood as the mediator of the new covenant. That time had already come to these people. So you're following, the writer would say, you're following a ritual that's dead. It's gone. It's expired. If you look at last week when Pastor Matt taught, there was a couple verses in here. He left off with this. He left me with this. Chapter 8, verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That's the idea. Hey, guys, time's up. I don't know why you keep going back in there. I have an idea because it's habit. Old, old traditions, old habits die young. But this time is up. The time of reformation is here. Right? Jesus Christ had already been on the scene. His sacrifice had already been made. He'd already ushered in the new covenant. That one's old and passed away. Are you ready for the original yet? The writer would say. Are you done with the pattern? Are you done with the copies? Are you done with the shallow, external, temporary, symbolic copy of the original? Are you done with that now? And when you are, I'm going to show you a new way. I'm going to remind you, okay? I showed you the limitations of the old. I'm going to remind you of the glory and the superiority of the new covenant mediated by Jesus Christ himself. Amen? So are you guys ready for the original? Of course we are, right? Let's check out the original, the real deal the heavenly sanctuary and its sacrifices, right? And its superiority in comparison to this old cheap copy. And as we do in the rest of this chapter, I'm not going to do it justice. I know that. Challenge you to read this. Read this. Make it your own. Holy Spirit will teach you something. You're going to see something beautiful here if you do that. You're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. You're going to see an unfolding of a copy and a pattern into beauty. That's what you're going to see. You're going to see this writer unfolding all those details that make sense to the Hebrew mind. And what you see is Jesus high and lifted up. Amen? Kind of reminds me of when you were young. Did you guys ever do paper snowflakes? 
You know, you fold those papers and you make all the cuts and it looks like nothing. And it looks, it's like, okay, every little detail, but then when you unfold it and you unwrap it, they're magnified and they unfold into something beautiful. That's this next chart of this chapter. We're going to unfold the old and see the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's check it out. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that had come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Okay, he's going to unfold a little bit, right? He's going to unfold what they already know about high priests. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he's going to compare something here. That high priest could go in there once a year, right? This high priest is Jesus Christ. And he's a high priest, not over an earthly sanctuary, but a heavenly sanctuary, right? This is the power of this present reality right now, is that Jesus Christ is the great high priest over a heavenly tabernacle. It's what all that stuff was patterned after. He's up there. Amen? Jesus Christ is in heaven, the very throne room as we learned last week. The right hand of the Father. More perfect tent, not made with hands. He's in heaven. He doesn't enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. Do you see what it says here in verse 12? He entered once for all into the holies of holies. Not by blood of goats and bulls, but by his own blood. Amen? Securing eternal redemption. Amen. There's a tabernacle in heaven. And the mediator, the high priest that sits at the right hand of the Father is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's have hold of his own blood. Not once a year but once and for all. Amen? That's a great, beautiful representation of the high priest and the day of atonement and the blood of all these animals. Amen? So we compared, but really the heart of this last, this last section is verse 13 and 14. Let me read it to you because it contrasts. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more were the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Amen? It's a contrast. He's, the writer is saying, listen, if all those old rituals, cleaning the outside, cleaned your outside up, your flesh, how much more the blood of Jesus Christ will address the real problem? He'll get inside of your inner person and clean up the guilt once for all. How much more? It's a contrast. The answer is a lot more, right? A lot more is here. He will clean your conscience from dead works. 
to serve the living God. These two verses solve the problem that the old never did. They left the conscience untouched. Remember? It never got to the heart of the matter. It's the stinky Russians, right? More cologne. He said, no, not now listen. This one, this covenant, this blood, this high priest, this mediator gets to the heart of the matter. He cures the guilt problem once and for all by the power of his blood, not the bulls and the goats. Amen? That's what he's saying. Problem solved. No more condemnation in Christ. Amen? You've been made the righteousness of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? It's done. Problem solved. The ritual no longer becomes dead work, but becomes service unto a God out of gratitude. Oh, I see a new constitution for the Christian to live by. It's election time. Everybody's all nervous. What is our constitution in the United States? It, it, it guarantees our freedom as citizens, right? With its different amendments, right? Freedoms. I don't see it. Well, anyways, I won't say that. But, but it's supposed to be important, this constitution. Here's a new constitution for the Christian a constitution we can live by that guarantees our freedom, not as a citizen, but as a freedom from guilt. And this is how you do it. <laughs> Listen to me. You do not rest in your and focus on your works for God or in service to God. That's what he's saying here. You do it by focusing on what he's done for you once and for all on his cross. That blood is powerful enough to free you from guilt. That's the idea. It's a new constitution to live by. Is why don't we try doing this? Why don't we try looking at that substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his blood and looking at that. Look what that avails us. What we have in Christ Jesus spiritually. There's no condemnation. When we look at that, the conscience says, I'm not guilty anymore because it's not me anymore. I'm focused on him and what he did. It's more than enough. Amen? There's no condemnation in Christ. You've been made the righteousness of Christ. You're accepted. So those of you who suffer from a guilty conscience, you don't need to anymore. I want to encourage you. Listen to me. <laughs> There's not one thing you can do to get God to love you more or accept you more. I don't care how good it is. If it's on this earth, I don't care what your good intentions are. It will never, ever clear your conscience because it doesn't do anything to it except put a little cologne on the problem. You can't do anything. That's the whole point of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. It's driving you to someone who could and would and is and will always be that covering with his blood for you. That's it. That's it. You can't do anything to add anything. Jesus loves you. Or God loves you and accepts you only because of his son, Jesus Christ. When will we get that? That's where you are seen. God sees you through the lens of his son and what he did for you. And I say hallelujah and amen to that. 
because I have a mirror at home. Do you? I would be guilty every day. Right? The authentic Christian life is, is a life lived by the power of another. Did you know that? It's letting God live a life through you. And then, right? And then your service becomes gratitude and just a response to that. It's not dead works anymore. It's just thank you. Thank you. I see you. I don't see me. I see you. I don't see me. Oh, right? It's a life lived in the power of another, right? First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20, 24, I think, he who called you is faithful. He will surely get it done, right? Philippians 4, 13, what does that say? I can do all things through my bootstraps, me, through Christ who strengthens me, amen? See, that's the whole deal there. It's a new constitution we should order our life after. I think that's the heart of the matter here. Let's keep moving on. Therefore, verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I can't even talk. Sorry. <clears throat> Hopefully you got that. There's a mediator of a new covenant, Jesus Christ. And you see him here in verse 15, releasing eternal inheritance. What's that? Salvation. He's going to impart or release this mediator of this new covenant that he's over. He's going to release that at the time, did anybody catch it? That he died. Right? And then it reaches back even to the Old Testament believer, even to us, and even into the future. Check it out. Therefore, he is a mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise, eternal inheritance. Why? Since or because a death had occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, listen, when those guys sinned back then, they were doing all these rituals that didn't work. God was saying, by faith, if you can grab what it was, the original, what it was pointing at, if you can grab that, you're saved too. If you really get that it's pointing towards Jesus, faith in that, the Messiah, the, his sacrifice would be sufficient. Jesus had to die. This section, I just, the rest is... The next few verses, everything costs something. Jesus had to die. <laughs> and he had to raise again, but he, he had to die and shed his blood. Everything costs something. The sins of the old were addressed when he died and rose again. The sins of today and the sins of the future. These Old Testament believers could reach forward and see that by faith and grab it. Just like we reach to the past in the cross and grab it, right? That's what he's saying. Something has to die. Substitutionary death. These guys knew that. I mean, the ancients understood that something had to die 
Things cost something, right? Check out verse 16 and 17, because what represents death is blood. And we're getting to the heart of the matter here. For where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it, it must be established. For a will does not take place unless a death takes place. So what's that? That's just saying that your last will and testament, how is that executed? You die. Right? Watch a Dateline mystery murder. Right? If you don't want to watch us, here's what happens. Everybody gets killed because they want the money and the will. Right? Why, why do they kill each other? That's how they get the money and the life insurance. Someone's got to die. That's all this is saying is that that's not going to, the promise is not going to happen until it's executed. The testament of the Lord Jesus Christ, God had, had to plan it this way where Jesus had to die for that. That's why, verse 18, the first covenant even was inaugurated with blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and of goats and of water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant, the old covenant that God commanded to you. And in the same way, sprinkled it with blood, both the tent and all the vessels throughout the worship. Indeed, under the law, even, almost everything is purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Everything costs something. The ancients understood this. The old sacrificial system was a gory deal. I mean, they killed things. And they brought their blood in as a substitute, as a penalty, as a, subs as, as a trade-off to God. Something had to die. It's teaching them substitutionary death. That's what it was teaching. The very mercy seat that sits over where they would put the blood, and God would look at it and go, okay, I'm satisfied with that. I'll let this transgression be nullified or equalized by that. That mercy seat, another, the real word, for, it's not mercy seat. It's, the real word is propitiation seat. You know what that word means? It means satisfaction. God looked at it and goes, I'm satisfied. Good trade for now. Good trade. Substitutionary death that's represented in blood. We're such a sterile society. We don't get this very often. May I make a recommendation to you is maybe go to a farm and see something get butchered. Everything costs something. Ew, that's gross. I don't like watching my cows be butchered. I don't. But you know what? I did it a few times. It made me appreciate my hamburger and my steak a little bit more. I like cows. Something has to die for me to eat. Pretty simple message. Something had to die because of your sin. Some, some, somebody had to pay your price. There's no free lunch. Everything costs something. I don't care what people are saying in our culture right now. Everything costs something. Jesus is saying this, listen, <laughs> all this blood, all this stuff, my blood covers it all. My death in your place so that you can live forever. Amen. Blood's, it's important. It costs something. Without blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, it says. I'm glad. I'm happy. I'm thankful. 
of the blood of Jesus Christ, the media of our new covenant, that I have forgiveness for my sins, that once I was like scarlet, I have been washed as white as snow, right? I've been made whole again through the blood of Jesus. Amen? He's pardoned me. He's accepted me because of the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus, if I have hope and peace, I'm not condemned. Amen? Am I talking to the right people today? Because listen, it's got to be about the blood of Jesus for us. It can't be about our service and about our shiny outward expressions. By the blood of Jesus, it says we will overcome till the end. Do you know that? It's important. I'll close up tonight with this. It's a hymn. It's an old hymn. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Remember that one? So let's do it together, and this is how we'll close, okay? What can wash away my sins? And you guys say what? Okay, what can make me whole again? Come on, you guys can do better than that. I mean, seriously, we're done here, okay? We're done. This is it. I mean it. This is it. So I want a little more out of you guys tonight, and here we go. We're going to start over. I'm going to do my part. You do nothing but the blood of Jesus, okay? You don't have to sing it. Just shout it. Here we go. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? For my pardon, this I see. For my cleansing, this is my plea. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. You guys are fading. We're almost done. Come on. You got to want it. Now by this I'll overcome. <laughs> now by this I'll reach my home. Glory, glory, this I sing. All my praise for this I bring. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So, Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for your son and his precious blood and what it avails us. I pray that we live in his power, in his glory today. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen. amen. You guys have a great night.